Certainly when the mine closed, thought, as, as the community did, a lot of people thought, that's the end of the world. What are we going to do? We're not qualified, we're not traded to do anything else other than mine. Um, and there's a lot of people that's never returned to work since then. And, and then within five or six years, then you saw the community start to decay. Because you had this boom of, of wealth, and then suddenly no money, no income, no jobs. So, so then you see properties decay, you'd see people moving out of villages and things, and we'd become sort of resolved to that fact and thought, well, that's our destiny. You know, we're, we're a declining village, we're, you know, like a lot of communities. And our saviour has been the road, really. Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Bernadette Valentine. And in this episode, we've partnered with Mott McDonald to examine how putting sustainable development at the heart of projects can transform local communities. From creating new jobs that eliminate poverty and reduce inequality, to enhancing the environment, leading to improved health and well-being. In today's society, sustainable development is more important than ever before. As climate emergencies, shocking levels of poverty and growing inequality continue to dominate headlines. In fact, it's so critical that the UK very recently undertook the country's first ever voluntary national review of performance against the 17 United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, known as the SDGs. There's 169 targets within the SDGs, but the headlines include ensuring that there's no poverty or hunger, that people can live healthy lives with good levels of well-being and receive a good quality education, that there's greater gender equality and reduced disparity in wealth, and that people are supplied with clean water, effective sanitation and zero carbon energy, that opportunities exist for decent work in economies with strong infrastructure and industry, supported by a culture of innovation. They also include ensuring that towns and cities are sustainable with responsible production and consumption, that actions taken to tackle the causes and effects of climate change, and that long-term health of marine, aquatic and land-based ecosystems is protected. And finally, that there's a strong and effective support for the goals. Like the 193 countries that have signed up to them, the UK has committed to meeting the goals by 2030. The key mantra of the Sustainable Development Goals that I particularly love is the no one is left behind. And if this is pursued uh, within the boundaries uh, of a country, I think we are all going to find ourselves in a much better position. This is Davide Stranati, Global Sustainability Leader at Mock McDonald. He explains that the SDGs follow on from the UN's eight millennium development goals, which made incredible progress tackling extreme poverty in developing countries between 2000 and 2015. In 2015, the UN broadened its vision, more than doubling the number of goals and making it clear that they're global, not just for the developing world. The issues of the sustainable development goals are not just bespoke to developing countries, I'm afraid. And uh, these are issues we are seeing in developed countries as well. And I'm referring to climate change. Uh, we are all affected by it and we are all part of it. And uh, if there is a climate emergency, I would suggest there's a, a sustainable development goals uh, emergency because inequality is rising in developed as in developing countries. And so the sustainable development goals are fully applicable 
um, to uh, any, any country on this planet. Infrastructure is critical for sustainable development. That's widely acknowledged. But many projects fail to deliver all of their potential benefits. And that looks like a missed opportunity. Decisions to invest in assets, amenities and vital services and subsequent planning and delivery all too rarely take deeper consideration of local needs and wider effects. And this is where the SDGs can play a role and make a difference. Those 17 themes and 169 targets provide a framework for working with local communities and exploring the scope and potential of a project to achieve more without spending more. I asked Davide about projects that are getting this right, improving opportunities and transforming lives. He told me about a village just outside Doncaster in South Yorkshire called Rossington. Not always uh, great projects, they they need big budgets. Uh, They need great ingenuity. And this is a stretch uh, of a road, uh, four kilometres. Not, you know, in the big schemes, uh, it's not a big, uh, a long stretch. Uh, but effectively, Rossington, uh, this village in, in Yorkshire, um, was very, uh, you know, popular. And um, during the, the period of the mines, where they were still mining, but of course, when um, it became um, not economical anymore uh, to use Rossington uh, for the miners, um, it really went down. And, and therefore, um, what we did was creating this stretch of road um, which is connecting Rossington, um, uh, the airport uh, of Sheffield, Sheffield itself, and a logistic hub. And this created a completely new uh, economy, a new possibility for for the local area uh, that is thriving again um, in a different way and, and delivering local jobs. My, my family were a traditional mining family. My, my grandfather came down to, to, to help sink the mine. This is Ken Guest, a local landlord, former mine electrician and now chair of Rossington Parish Council. And it was his voice that started this episode. And it was a big family, 14 children they had. They all went into mines. And my career, my career uh, advice my father was, if they're going pit lad, they're going as electrician. And I did. I went as an electrician in underground and served for 17 years as a, as a mining coalface electrician. Certainly when the mine closed, I thought, as, as the community did, a lot of people thought, that's the end of the world. What we under, we're not qualified, we're not traded to do anything else other than mine. Um, and there's a lot of people that's never returned to work since then. And then within five or six years, then you saw the community start to decay. Because you had this boom of, of wealth and then suddenly no money, no income, no jobs. So, so then you see properties decay, you see people moving out of villages. At the same time, traditional manufacturing industries such as steel were in decline, limiting opportunities in nearby cities of Doncaster and Sheffield. The early 90s were a bleak time. This is John Cook, who went to school with Ken and is now a taxi driver, as well as being an independent ward councillor. At one point, there were, uh, I would have said with a lot of people, there was a desperation about him, yeah, really, absolutely. because they couldn't see a future. And they didn't think there was going to be anything left, you know, and everything was just going to go downhill. And it, and it has. It, it has. It has. And we'd, we'd become, we'd adjusted to that, and we'd become sort of resolved to that fact and thought, well, that's our destiny. You know, we're, we're a declining village, we're, you know, like a lot of communities, like a lot of villages, especially if you go up in the northeastern places, there's a lot of villages that have well, declined massively. Well, northeast, around here, around Doncaster itself. And, and Every community was affected. Especially, there's a lot of pits around Doncaster. Yeah. And they were all affected dramatically. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. The, and our saviour has been the road, really. Yeah. 
because it's not just opened up accessing to Doncaster and commuting to, Lund- uh, to Leeds and to Sheffield, it's also on our doorstep provided massive employment with the, uh, with the new industrial estate. The road Ken's talking about is the Great Yorkshire Way, which has resolved the town's crippling connectivity challenge. Before this, there was just one route in and out, and frequently, Rossington residents were literally unable to leave because of an at-grade rail crossing. Head of service for major projects at Doncaster Council, Neil Firth, explains. It's the East Coast Main Line, and the train runs through every few minutes. And then there was, there was times when, in the morning peak, between 8 and 9, it might be shut for 45 minutes. Bus operators didn't want to run services, making the short journey to neighbouring Doncaster for a job interview, to start the working day, to attend college, or get to the shops was fraught with difficulty. And Rossington was among the 50% of Doncaster's boroughs in the bottom 10% of the UK deprivation index. We were looking for ways of regenerating, regenerating the town. Um, one of the aspects of the town was our geographical position, our t- topographical position were a flat area. We're surrounded by the motorway network. We have the East Coast Main Line um, going through Doncaster. Uh, we're not far from the Humber Port. And then in 2005, um, we opened an international airport. And what we wanted to do was we saw an opportunity to use those transport and access and connectivity as opportunities for inward investment and to regenerate our communities which were suffering. Neil says that the need for a better link between Doncaster-Sheffield Airport and the motorway network was the key to turning Rossington's fortunes around. The road passes the village. Um, So we were looking at ways of providing connectivity from the airport to the motorway to make an attractive um, proposition for airport operators to, to start to develop and make the most of it. In addition to encouraging investment in the airport, which is owned by Peel Holdings, the road attracted the interest of private investors. Developer Verdian saw the potential to build a strategic rail freight interchange and logistics centre with 6 million square feet of warehousing, bringing 5,500 new jobs. And Howarth Estates were interested in redeveloping the former pit site for 1,200 new homes and a country park. What they wanted was a fast, high-capacity connection from the town to Junction 3 on the M18, which would then give access to the rest of the UK. And so what we did, we, we coalesced around those three developers and looked at ways of providing a infrastructure that supported the airport, that um, delivered regeneration for Rosington and unlocked um, the strategic rail freight interchange. The Great Yorkshire Way connects the M18 to the airport and gives direct access to Rossington via a spur. The £56 million project was kick-started with an £18 million award from the Regional Growth Fund, but this came with an expiry date, which allowed the council to push developers to commit to funding £34 million. Nigel Morley was the designer for Mott MacDonald, who worked closely with the council from the very early stages of the project to final completion. We, we kind of embedded Nigel into the council, so we had him on tap to see the scheme through from inception. Um, he wasn't just a, a designer. Nigel was a, a key part of my team, supporting me, in the, and he bought into the reasons of the scheme, what we try to achieve for Doncaster. A local person himself, Nigel understood the challenges that the project was seeking to solve and it was far from easy to build. There were basically a set of constraints across the alignment which meant that the probably two-thirds of the the link road had to be elevated on an embankment. We've got, we had to cross the East Coast Main Line which is electrified 
Uh, that required a 30 meter high embankment. We had another smaller railway that we had to cross over the top of and two or three watercourses where we had to elevate and go over the top and build bridges. So a heavy structural content to the scheme as well as earthworks. Another challenge to beset the team was that the main contractor for the scheme was Carillion, which went into liquidation in January 2018, when the second phase of the road link was still under construction. Well, we we structured it in such a way that Carillion were in partnership with Tarmac and that we wrote into the contracts there was a default position if either of them went under or away. Um, the other one was obliged to pick it up and Tarmac um, did that. By June 2018, the road was finished. I asked local people and businesses what difference it made. The Great Yorkshire Way means that we now have an extra million people within an hour's drive of the airport. This is John Huddleston from Doncaster Sheffield Airport, which is expecting to have its best ever year to date in 2019, with 1.4 million passengers, up from 1.25 million in 2018. This year it has 250,000 more seats and 12 new routes on offer, as operators have seen the benefits of improved surface access for passengers. The airport provides a thousand local jobs and the number's growing along with new housing, shops, restaurants and leisure facilities that accompany site expansion. And the iPort, the new rail freight and logistics hub, well, that's huge. Amazon dispatches goods to all corners of the country from its 1.3 million square foot logistics hub. Lidl has almost completed a £70 million regional distribution centre and logistics firm Siva and business products company Fellows have both got big footprints. iPort is growing fast and this means more jobs and that means more people and higher incomes. Rossington is thriving again. Ken even calls it a boom town. Employment's grown massively. We've got people now queuing up to rent properties in our community. He says that the island mentality that affected residents is lifting and that it's small changes that have a major impact on day-to-day life for residents. Residents' uh, access to Doncaster can be, as an example of that, before if you were doing any DIYs when you wanted to be in queue, it was a 40-minute journey. Easy. Now you can get there in about nine minutes. The DIY store is only three miles away, but to get there previously, you had to drive all around Doncaster on the A638. Also had a, a, a really high index for um, obesity and uh, ill health and early premature, well, early deaths due to uh, cardiacs, etc. But now we're getting, we're opening up much more, so people can. And we, Lakeside's an example, and the new, the new uh, country park will open up much more uh, opportunities on, on going for walks or cycle rides. You know, so hopefully we can start and change a lot of the demographics of the community because we have been a, a very rundown community. But it is now changing a little. And you can see that. It's only in its, in its infancy, but the, the acorns are starting to grow oaks now. Locals say that one of the best things about the new road in Rossington is that it's opened up more opportunities for young people who'd suffered from a lack of connectivity, jobs and youth services. In fact, when I was in the area, many people told me that they or their children had left because it was just too cut off. There weren't the jobs and it was difficult to commute to places like Doncaster or Sheffield. Now it's a different story. People are coming back and young people are staying. Thinking about the Sustainable Development Goals, the Great Yorkshire Way contributes directly to Goal 9, Industry, Innovation and Infrastructure. Goal 11, about sustainable cities and communities. Goal 8, Decent Work and Economic Growth. And coming soon, according to Ken, Goal 3, Good Health and Wellbeing. Indirectly, the road and regeneration of Rossington contribute to goal four, quality education, because young people and adults can more easily get to college now. And goal 10, reduced inequalities. 
Of course, all of this was enabled by Goal 17, working in partnership for the goals. Here's Nigel again. Yeah, I grew up in a village very similar to Rosington. Not very far away from here, actually. So, uh, and I live... I live locally as well, live quite close to the airport. So I use the road probably nearly every day, as do, as do members of my family and neighbours. Neil also lives very close as well. So, so we all benefit from, from Great Yorkshire Way. I think, it's, uh, I think it's, it's probably exceeded our expectations, actually, in how it's changed, changed people's lives, which is, which is what, what it was intended to do in the first place. Another project changing lives by putting sustainable development at its core is Colwyn Bay in North Wales. Could you just tell us your, your sort of name so I can check the sound level? My sort of name? <laughs> name and, and job title. Your actual name and job title. Um, hi, so my name's Taffy Osborne and my job is running a company called Colwyn Bay Water Sports. Um, we're a not-for-profit company that delivers sailing, windsurfing, powerboating, canoeing and kayaking tuition from the Porth area site in Colwyn Bay. And how long have you been here? So we started operating at the end of 2013. So I was kind of working on it on and off. Tuffy's business was only made possible thanks to the reconstruction of around three miles of promenade and creation of a new beach. Colwyn Bay had been a major tourist destination in the 19th and early 20th century, thanks to its vast sandy beaches. But tides, currents and storms had steadily eroded the beach away to almost nothing, and the town had lost its appeal to holidaymakers, and it was in decline. With no beach to soak up the energy of the crashing winter waves, and the promise of worse to come with climate change, the town's aged seawall was suffering damage, and in places it was in danger of collapse, putting the town at risk. A new line of defence was needed. The least cost solution to defend with a rock armour wall would have forever cut off the sea from the town and kiboshed seafront regeneration. A radical and more expensive alternative solution was to reinstate the beach using tons of dredged sand kept in place with a rock groin. Some clever joining up of funding sources was needed to cover the costs and the case had to be made for the extra investment. And that was done by communicating the scheme and its benefits to local businesses. Their enthusiasm and desire to see Colwyn Bay's declining fortunes reversed gave confidence that the beach restoration option would kickstart wider regeneration and increase the cost-benefit ratios. This is Davide from Mont McDonald again. So by joining up uh, a regeneration funding uh, from, from, from the central government in, in Wales, and, um, and the sea defence uh, funding, there was enough to recreate uh, what is now a, a fantastic project. It is delivering uh, amazing outcomes for the, the local community and the wider community because people go back to Colwyn Bay. It is a destination uh, with jobs created. There's a restaurant, very successful, and there's also a um, sea uh, resort um, sport uh, facility that is becoming increasingly popular there and people go there. So it is a destination. People are using the beach. For local people, it's been very welcome. This kind of thing, what we do here now, was never here when I was growing up as a kid. Uh, there was a sailing club, but um, that kind of diminished in the intervening years. Taffy had grown up in Colwyn Bay, but moved away to teach sailing and windsurfing abroad. 
he found out about plans for the beach from local media and met with the council to talk about the potential for a water sports business, which he set up in 2013. So just, today, just taking today as an example, um, I've got a powerboat instructor course running, I've got uh, people training to be windsurf instructors that are doing their first aid course today, um, I've got a paddling group in later, I've got a windsurfing lesson going on now. Um, actually it's a rare day because I don't think there's any sailing today but some of the uh, staff might come in and have a little sail later so there's quite a range of different activities going on. On Saturday we had 340 kids um, using the beach uh, with, with us and we'd have for that to deliver that I think we had about 15 staff and another 10 volunteers just to give you an idea. And many of those are young people. I think that's the coolest thing about my job is that most of my staff are awesome young people that are a real pleasure to work with um, and a lot of them have sort of stumbled on this place and come here and worked and I've got uh, stacks of examples of um, young people that probably were going to struggle to find much to do locally um, that they would enjoy so people off sort of brick lane courses things like that um, who've kind of discovered as almost by accident volunteered for us, um, really enjoyed it, worked a bit harder on developing their own sporting ability and then got their sailing instructor, windsurf instructor, paddle sport instructor qualification and then been able to work here like using that. So I feel like we do have a, a real impact on the young lives of a lot of our staff and volunteers which is, which is really nice and really it's my favourite part of the job to be honest. And all of this is a result of an infrastructure project and really brings home the importance of seeing the bigger picture when making investment decisions. Benji Poulton is the project manager for Colwyn Bay Waterfront Project and we met on the beach to talk about how the need to protect the coastline with hard defences turned into a regeneration project creating jobs and economic growth in this seaside town. Well, Colwyn Bay is, uh, is quite a large bay, it's a lovely long sweep all the way around from Rawson Sea round to Old Colwyn which is uh, two to three miles in length. When the tide was in, or at least from mid-tide onwards, uh, there wasn't any beach to be seen here. It still looked beautiful, I'm not saying, um, but there was nowhere to go and play or run your dog there, yeah. down on the sand. The promenade itself had become old. It was kind of chewed up tarmac. It wasn't a very wide promenade. Um, it suffered a lot of damage when there was overtopping and it, there was no amenity here to bring people to the area. So, so you had to start by raising the level? That's right, the level of the promenade was raised to uh, reduce the number of times per year that we would need to close the promenade and of course uh, we also widened the promenade to improve the amenity of the area. We also built um, uh, the Porteras building that we stood on the roof of today which provides a restaurant, there's a water sports centre here, changing facilities etc and another cafe further down the bay. Um, so that people who do visit the area have uh, somewhere to go for an ice cream. And where did you get the sand from that you've created this lovely beach? Now, the sand was actually dredged from about 15 kilometres directly out to sea. Um, we're looking out today towards the um, wind farm uh, just off the bay there and the sand that you see on the bay today was actually dredged from a sandbank just beyond those windmills. By combining the needs of the local community for regeneration with the physical requirements of replacing a deteriorating Victorian seawall, the council was able to create a project that meets many of the UN sustainable development goals, such as creating sustainable communities, 
goal 11, offering opportunities for work and economic growth, goal 8, and tackling climate action, goal 13. At the same time, the promenade is also host to a combined cycle and walking pathway with distance markers noting facts about sporting achievements, and that supports good health and well-being, goal 3. Davide makes the point that in both Rossington and Colwyn Bay, infrastructure projects have been catalysts for sustainable change and better lives. But what if the SDGs had been part of the thinking right back when the projects were first conceived? By addressing sustainable development at the offset, could investors, engineers and developers achieve even better performance? And that's something that Mark McDonald and the Institution of Civil Engineers are calling on built environment practitioners to do with local partners and community stakeholders. The sustainable development goals, uh, are they need to be considered at the earliest possible stage. Uh, they are going to deliver the maximum results and minimize the you know, negative impacts if they are considered right at the beginning. We have plenty of evidence that very well planned and, and designed uh, assets are effectively the most uh, successful ones. Nathan Baker is the Director of Engineering Knowledge at the Institution of Civil Engineers. With Davide, he's leading the creation of something called the Sustainability Route Map. The Route Map is our first attempt at bringing together the engineering community to focus upon the work that it does and the benefits that fall from that, and then to look at bringing together how we do the work, why we do the work, in the framework of the UN's Sustainable Development Goals. The intent being that if we're just building a bridge or a dam or a tunnel and we have not got a mind on the benefit that it brings to society and for how long, and we've then made sure that not only have we aligned the work that gets done by the engineers and the infrastructure community to greater good, but also that we've understood that somebody's already defined the greater good for us. The the UN SDGs are a very clear map, um, set of targets that says, if you do your work with these in mind, you will bring greater value to society. The starting point of the route map is to look at current projects from the perspective of the Sustainable Development Goals. The first piece for the current engineer is to look at the project that they've got on their chit today and say, which bits of this project, how does this project contribute to the delivery of the Sustainable Development Goals? And the Sustainable Development Goals need to be delivered within 12 years. So it really chimes with the wider agenda around climate change that we're all talking about today. How is a client looking at the SDGs in terms of how it wants its contractors to operate. There's a whole raft of behaviours that the SDGs can help us to change if we use them as a lens through which we look at our, our work. In fact, clients have already started to use the SDGs to underpin their projects. This is Simon Dawes, Head of Sustainability from the Environment Agency, who says that the agency's on a journey to incorporate the SDGs into its project. Its journey began on the Boston Barrier Project in Lincolnshire which is a new tidal barrier protecting 14,300 homes. It's being constructed by the Environment Agency in partnership with Lincolnshire County Council, Boston Borough Council and the Black Sluice Internal Drainage Board. Mott McDonald is the design consultant. With the team, we mapped all of the contributions we make across the UNSDG. And there are contributions to be made uh, 
right across the spectrum of the 17. Boston was one of the most uh, deprived areas of the UK. We know from the speaking to residents and from the research that we did there, one of the uh, manifestations of that is that people there do not tend to have house insurance. They do not tend to have any kind of content insurance for their house. So when they have flooding, it's far, far harder for them to recover from that shock. So, um, and they live with the threat, or they have lived with the threat of that on every significant high spring tide. So by putting the barrier in um, uh, and uh, delivering the level of protection that it will deliver, it really starts to help those people that can't afford to have insurance um, to be insulated from those uh, climatic uh, events. From an SDG perspective, this alone is contributing to Goal 1, No Poverty, and Goal 13, Climate Action. But this appreciation of the goals after the project's been planned and is under construction does take a retrospective approach. And Simon says the next step is moving to a more proactive strategy. The place where we need to move to is for people to start with the goals in mind uh, right at the very start. So the way I'm describing it is when, it just, when, when a scheme is merely the twinkle in somebody's eye, that's when we need to have the uh, SDGs in mind at the start. This means that the agency's building consideration of the SDGs into their business case models and commercial arrangements. A benefit mapping exercise will be incorporated at the start of any new project to show performance against the SDGs and reveal any missed opportunities. Performance will then be linked to financial incentives for the delivery team. So the intention is we're really starting to try and bake in the SDGs into our, our ways of working. With major clients, consultants and professional institutions leading the charge, there's huge potential for the UK to show how the SDGs can improve project outcomes and export know-how. But as a country, we've still got a lot of work to do. The government, led by the Department for International Development, produced the first ever voluntary national review of progress against the SDGs this summer, and this 216-page data-heavy document makes for a sober read. National performance has also been summarised by UK Stakeholders for Sustainable Development, UKSSD, in a document called Measure Up. It uses a red, amber, green system to rate attainment from poor to good. Dominic White's the former chair of the UK SSD and he outlined the findings. And what we found was that the UK does well on 24% of the sustainable development goals. Um, and, but uh, of course, uh, only 57% um, of the goals were actually rated amber, which was not sufficient. And one of the reasons for this was we, uh, uh, we used the uh, principle of ensuring that the development that goes on in the UK applies to everybody in the UK. In other words, if there were marginalised groups who weren't receiving the benefit of different aspects of development, then they would only score amber, which is why, unfortunately, the UK is, is rating so poorly on, on many of the goals. This won't come as a surprise to the UN, whose Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty, Philip Alston, in November 2018, visited the UK and reported that 14 million people here are living in extreme poverty and one and a half million people are destitute, with child poverty on the rise. It also comes as no surprise to the man who founded social enterprise magazine The Big Issue, Lord John Bird. He says that when it comes to sustainable development goals, if the UK tackles the first goal, eradicating poverty... The rest will follow. 
I looked at the goals, and the first one, if I remember, is the is poverty. And I was astonished that every one of the goals subsequent to that all related back to if you sorted out poverty, you'd sort that out. And it, it, but you'd have to take the word poverty and run with it in a probably a different way. And I'm not trying to be too intellectual, but you'd have to look at the poverty of spirit, the poverty of aspiration, the poverty of understanding. That if you have, a, if you live in an economy where um, a vast amount of people are just about managing because they're not making enough money, then that will have an incredible effect on the quality of the environment. On, I mean, why is it that it's in the poorest areas that you have the most um, environmental despoilation? Lord Bird would like to see a rethink of the way government allocates funding to tackle social deprivation and poverty, what he calls the social pound. For instance, if you look at the social pound and the the way that the social pound is spent, 80% of it is spent on emergency and coping. Very, very little on cure and very little on prevention. So you have this kind of poverty of spirit and poverty of thinking within the government itself. People say, well, you know... Um, we want a bit more money for social security, so you give a, so so the opposition advocates more money to give to people in on social security. I would say, what they need more of is social opportunity. So you give them more money in order to increase the quality of their lives, but if you don't give them opportunity, then you get this ridiculous situation where, if you you if you live in a council social housing your children have less than, I think, about 2% chance of getting to the college, getting to the university, getting a highly skilled job, moving out of poverty themselves. So there's a kind of replication of another generation of people in need. So what you need to do is social security has to be turned into social opportunity. And it's exactly this, better opportunities, that putting sustainable development goals at the heart of projects creates. Rossington and Colwyn Bay are now, and Boston soon will be, towns full of opportunity to work, travel, exercise and live fulfilling lives, thanks to investment in infrastructure that considered social, economic and environmental needs from the outset. Perhaps one of the most powerful examples of the creation of social opportunity can be found in London on the South Bank. My name's Ian Tuckett and I'm the chief executive of an organisation called Coin Street Community Builders. Now, it's a development trust and a social enterprise that came out of a campaign to keep housing in central London. Now, that may seem an odd thing, but in the 20th century, there was a lot of pressure to turn the whole of the South Bank of London into an extension of the city in the West End and that basically meant offices and shops and there was at that time not going to be a residential population left. So we set up a campaign um, and we put forward our own uh, proposals for the major sites on the South Bank and began building um, co-op housing, social rent, so that ordinary people could afford them, 
Um, but the biggest sight of all was um, the Coin Street site, which runs along the riverside from Waterloo Bridge to Blackfriars Bridge. And it was derelict at the time and had been derelict for um, a couple of decades. Uh, and we had a vision of housing and uh, design workshops and park and uh, you know many of the things that people ordinary people sort of want in their area. The campaign united local people in working together for what was a common goal of saving residential communities and creating local affordable homes. It ran until the land was finally acquired from the Greater London Council in 1984 and then sustainable development began. We actually managed to get sympathetic architects and engineers and so on who helped us design a scheme which was, if you like, our vision. And so when the government decided in the end that it would take the decision and it had a number of public inquiries, then we were there, you know, uh, with a fleshed out vision of what we wanted. And it was very difficult for government to say no. The group didn't just want to regenerate the housing. It wanted to create pleasant, affordable places to live with parks and a riverside walkway that embraced the River Thames. They also started to think about employment potential for local people and developed retail and leisure opportunities. Over time, the development grew from an initial housing cooperative of 56 homes to the £20 million development of the Oxo Tower building. And finally, today there's low-cost housing for 1,200 people who do low-paid but vital jobs in nursing, childcare and education, for example. Today, income generated from commercial space, restaurants and the community's conference venue is used for public projects and current expansion plans include a new public swimming pool and leisure centre. Ian says that once the group gained experience, it became easier to raise finance and the economic model matured. At the same time, improved public spaces and facilities made the area more attractive. And so one of the things that happens is the land values start rising. Now, that can be bad if you're trying to buy land, but but obviously in our case, we now own the land. So as the land value and the popularity of the area increased, so our economic model came into um, you know being, which is essentially that we um, generate through commercial activity, um, letting you know spaces to restaurants or to designer makers or to pubs or to whatever, um, plus. You know, we have a conference business and, and so on. But we generate the money that we need in order to do look after the public realm and to um, run very extensive community programs, you know, that, as I say, are really about health and well-being, um, the best start in life for children and families, um, you know, work and play areas and, and also supporting 
enterprise. Ian says that the key to the success of the Coin Street Community Builders South Bank Redevelopment Project and sustainable development in general is engaging local people in the project and empowering them to take action. And this happens through partnership and collaboration. In fact, this thread runs quite clearly through all the projects we visited in this episode. Partnership between local authorities, local communities, investors and the professionals working on the schemes have all driven project teams to work together and create schemes that are truly sustainable because they reflect and fulfil the needs of the local communities. It's not surprising then that many people feel the most fundamental sustainable development goal is number 17, partnership for the goals. So as the UK takes its first steps towards meeting the sustainable development goals by reporting national progress, Nathan Baker says that the time is right for engineers and practitioners to begin incorporating them into their daily lives. Hang on a minute, this project, this work that I am doing, how is it delivering the SDGs? And if it's not, just question yourself and say, why is it not? Because the SDGs are so broad and so deep that if your work isn't doing one of the SDGs and if the SDGs are all about providing people with a sustainable future and with providing the next generation with a future in which we are all proud to hand over, then why are you doing it? So the SDGs are a really good framework for that and I think that that's where there's a real opportunity to use the SDGs constructively on a day-to-day basis. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media, hosted by Bernadette Ballantyne, produced by John Young and edited by Andrew Melius. Rory Harris is our Sustainable Development Goalkeeper. Special thanks to Motley Donald, Doncaster Council, Rossington Parish Council, Doncaster Sheffield Airport, Conwy County Borough Council, Colwyn Bay Watersports, Coin Street Community Builders, The Big Issue, the Institution of Civil Engineers, UKSSD, WWF and the people of Rossington and Colwyn Bay. If you like this podcast, please leave us a comment or review on your podcast app. That helps others to hear about us or tell a friend to have a listen. Engineering Matters can be found on all podcast apps and on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media. Follow us on Twitter at Engineer Matters or find us on LinkedIn, Reddit and Facebook. If you'd like to work with us, like Mott McDonald, to tell stories about engineering that matters, contact Rian, R-H-I-A-N, at reby, R-E-B-Y, media.com. Hold up. 